So this spring and summer at Kenilworth Union Church, uh, Katie and Joe and I are preaching a sermon series called Image of God. The subtitle to that sermon series might be Theological and Biblical Resources for a World of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Last week we looked at the first creation story in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is a second version of creation. Genesis 2 verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there God put the man. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good to eat. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to till it and to keep it. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them all to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and God touched the man's side. And from that place, God created the woman and brought her to the man. And then he said, This at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken." Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife, and the two become as one. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, as I said, there are two versions of the creation at the beginning of our Bibles. We looked at the first one last week, and perhaps you noticed instantly how different these two versions of the creation are from each other. The second creation story, the one I just read a few moments ago, is actually the older of the two, about 400 years older. So maybe you notice that it's simpler, sort of naive, but charming because of that, right? I would describe the first creation story, the newer and younger one, which we read last week, as magisterial. In that account, God has a plan, and God executes the plan with remarkable precision. God is like a mechanical engineer, or like a molecular physicist, or an astrophysicist, or a geologist, a hydrologist, a zoologist, a volcanologist exploding undersea mountains in the South Pacific to create a tropical paradise. Sure, it took a billion years, And even today, sometimes those mountains explode inconveniently every hundred, a thousand years, but still, it's a beautiful account. And God makes God's own self-assessment of the quality of creation. Six times in six days, God says, it's very, very good. Six times. And in the second creation story, God is not so much an engineer as an artist. And if you're in a creative business, you know that maybe your first draft isn't going to be your last draft, right? If you're an architect or an account manager at an ad agency or an interior designer or a portrait artist, the client will likely have some suggestions as to what the final project will look like. 
And so it's always back to the drawing board, back to the creative department, back to graphic design, back to the CAD system, back to the unfinished canvas. And so with God in the second creation story, God makes a man and then plants a garden in the barren desert. It looks great. Everything seems to be in place. But once again, God makes God's own self-assessment. And this time, the self-assessment is negative. Something is wrong. It's not good. Very unlike the first creation story where everything is good. Very good, six times, God says. Here God says, not good. And what's not good is that the man is alone. And so God goes back to the drawing board and concocts this whole leaping, flying, diving, swarming, burrowing zoo and parades the whole menagerie past the man to see what he will call them. And so that's Adam's first job, taxonomist. He has to name the animals and put them into kingdom, phyla, genus, and species. But it's still not good. Something's still wrong. The man is still lonely. A whole swarming zoo of fur, feather, and fins. But these cannot mitigate the man's loneliness. One writer said, I often marvel at the strong bonds of devotion and companionship between human beings and animals. Animals will never betray us and never deceive us and never treat us cruelly. But neither can they share a good book or a good laugh or a good cry. When a friend's beloved dog dies, we say, with kindness, so sorry, will you get another? When your friend's husband dies, you don't say that. So sorry, will you get another? So, God goes back to the drawing board a second time. And this time, God gets it right. God comes up with God's magnum opus. He creates the woman from the man's side, not from his head to command him and not from his feet to obey him, but from his side to companion him. And do you know what the first human word spoken on the earth is? The first words ever spoken on this earth, so beautiful, so touching. This at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. At last I have a helper fit for me. This time the man makes the evaluation of creation. This time, the man says, it's good. The man's delight and stunned jubilation over the woman. The first human word spoken. So, these stories from Genesis are etiologies, right? Do you know what an etiology is? E-T-I-O-L. An etiology is the study of origins or causes or beginnings. So, an etiological story wants to explain why the world is the way it is. So, for instance, why are there seven days in the week? There's seven days in the week because God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Why do snakes crawl on their bellies? Because God cursed the serpent for defrauding Adam and Eve. Why does childbirth hurt so much? Punishment for sin. Why do farmers and shepherds hate each other so much down the ages? Because the first farmer, Cain, murdered the first shepherd, his brother Abel. So the second creation story is partly an ideological answer to the question, why marriage? Why in almost every age, in almost every land, in every far corner of the earth, do human beings couple up in monogamous pairs? Why monogamy? So the Bible's answer to that question is because God knows that loneliness is not good 
and created men and women for each other from a common origin because loneliness is one of the baddest, saddest, meanest realities of earthly life, right? I read the most wonderful book a while back. It's called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon, who earlier had won a National Book Award for his book, The Noonday Demon. A lot of people have read that book about depression. But this book, Far From the Tree, is about children who, well, fall far from the tree. And so Mr. Solomon writes about deaf children of hearing parents, for example, or vice versa. And he writes about dwarf children of normal-sized parents, or vice versa. And one of his chapters is about autistic children. And Mr. Solomon says that the loneliness of some of these who are severely afflicted with autistic is so painful to watch. It hurts to look at them. And so one young man cannot speak, but sometimes the need to communicate what's inside him is so intense that all he can do is flail his arms and legs. And his mother says the older he gets, the sadder it is. He'll never get married, have children, be a grandfather, buy a house, all these normal things we do when we're adults because these things give texture to our lives and he won't have them. For him, there is nothing to see Nothing to look forward to all the way out to the horizon. The loneliness is just painful. Another mother says of her 13-year-old autistic son, if he were deaf, I would learn to sign, but there's no way for me to learn his language because he doesn't know it himself. Loneliness is one of the saddest, baddest, meanest realities of earthly life. And so God gives us to each other right? Why do we inhabit in coupling pairs, habit the earth in coupling pairs? It's for more than procreation. We're more than business partners. It does indeed take at least two to rise, to raise a thriving child, to forage for calories, to carve out shelter from the unforgiving wilderness, to keep it clean and warm, to chop firewood, it does take at least two to defend your domicile against wild beasts or hostile tribes, but it's more than that. We couple for companionship and for friendship. Robert Louis Stevenson, Stevenson said that marriage is a sort of friendship recognized by the police. Yes? A sort of friendship recognized by the police. And so we couple up to understand and to be understood to share our deepest dreams and our highest hopes and our loudest laughter and our funniest story, stories and our most copious tears and the things we're most afraid of and the things that keep us awake at night. Now, to be honest, a sermon like this applies to fewer and fewer Americans as the years roll by. According to recent surveys and recent times, for the first time in recent memory, Single adult Americans outnumber married adult Americans. So young people are choosing to wait for marriage till they're older. Many people eschew the institution altogether and never do get married. Divorce rates are dropping, but they're still high, almost 50%. The population is getting older, so there are many widows and widowers. And so maybe you're gay, and you don't need a member of the opposite sex to be a helper fit for you. Maybe you're not coupled up and never want to be. You still need a helper fit for you, yes? 
you have a person. You have a significant other whose loneliness on this earth you were placed here to mitigate. Who's your person? How can you be a helper fit for her? Before I marry a couple, I make them talk to me for about five hours. Not about the wedding, but about the marriage. And sometimes I ask them, so why is she the one? Why did you choose him? They don't tell me, well, he went to Harvard Law, I'll be rich. <laughs> or, look at her, our babies will be beautiful. That's, not what, that's maybe what they're thinking, I don't know, but that's not what they say to me. One young woman said to me, no one has ever gotten me like he does. I'm a little odd, I'm not easy, I'm different. He understands me better than I understand myself. And when I want to understand myself, I don't look inside, I ask him. And he makes me feel heard. He makes me feel seen. His affection carves out a space for my existence in this crowded and chaotic world. And so that's what's so sad about our shabby sexual behavior in this Me Too world. We're here to extinguish our mutual loneliness, the saddest, baddest, meanest reality on earth. Instead, so many bad actors just amplify the loneliness, right? Can you imagine how lonely a young person feels, young and innocent and powerless, when someone bigger, stronger, richer, more powerful, more trusted violates a physical boundary or makes a crude overture? Who will tell me? Who will believe me if I tell them? She might say to herself, I barely believe this myself. Larry Nasser, almost a benevolent deity in the world of gymnastics, sentenced 332 young women to solitary confinement for years. When Myra Sorvino reported Harvey Weinstein's improprieties to the Human Resources Department at Miramax, the HR people were shocked. Not at Mr. Weinstein. They'd heard this story before a hundred times, literally a hundred times before. They were shocked at Ms. Sorvino for having the audacity to tattle on him. It's his company. Leave it if you want. Well, so what, right? Very few of us are as crude and gross as the 100 famous men who have lost their jobs and their families and in some cases their freedom since November. How does this apply to us? So I don't think there aren't too many class of 2018 at Nutrier students here today, not too many graduating seniors off to university. But if there are, this is what I'd say to you. Go ahead, have fun, have a blast, learn a lot, launch your climb to summa cum laude, forge fast friendships, make many useful connections, be a loud and crazy football fan at every home game, win many lacrosse matches, join a choir, you'll kill the audition because Lisa taught you to sing, fall in love at least once, or many times if necessary, but never, ever 
use another human being as a tool for the attainment of your own purposes and pleasures. Not the cute freshman from Philosophy 151, not the frat brother, brother you haze, or the lab partner whose work you steal, or the professor you deceive to get a higher grade, because there are no human tools. As Professor Lewis puts it, besides the blessed sacrament itself, the holiest object presented to your senses is your neighbor. So if you have your person, if you have a helper fit for you, a husband or wife, parent or child, significant other, friend, colleague, or soulmate, honor her always for the precious treasure she is, and thank her now and then, at least once in a while, for walking the twisted, rutted path of life with you, and loft a prayer to God for thrusting us all into each other's arms at the very beginning, because the days are hard, and the nights are long, and it's best if we go through them together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please pray with me. God, creator of all, thank you for giving us to each other. Help us to honor each other in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.